Well, if you brought your Bible today, it'd be great to turn to Luke chapter 7. You can grab one in front of you or behind you. If you're on the front row, Luke chapter 7, we'll get there in a minute. We begin today, all you need is love. And today we're going to look at very specifically of how religion gets love wrong. Years ago, when this particular man would speak in the business world, in America and even globally, people would listen. He was known then as the guru of entrepreneurship and business values and and such. And when, again, when he spoke, people listened. And several decades ago, he said this, and it seems to be eerie and a little bit scary today. A man named Peter Drucker once said this. He said, when the rate of change outside the organization exceeds the rate of change inside the organization, the organization dies. Any organizational leaders today, anybody leading a team or leading an organization, uh, how does that grip you a little bit? Uh, today. Think about this. You know, we, we want to keep our eye on what's happening around us. And some of you love to plan. It's easy to get in a room and plan. And you planners, we know you who you are. You don't have to raise your hand. You love to make a plan in the cloisters of a room with some people, maybe even a consultant. And you lay it out A to Z about what you will do. And then what happens? Things fluctuate. The market changes. The temperature goes up or down. The barometric pressure modulates. Things happen. There's shifts and there's changes. And Listen, if you're going to be a leader in any organization, you will need to lead through uncertainty. Can I say that again? If you lead an organization, you will need to lead through uncertainty. And a lot of people don't like uncertainty. A lot of leaders get scared of uncertainty. But think about being a leader is you go first. All right, if, you're, if you're a leader, you, you will go first. Some of you are young and being educated and you will be a leader more one day. You will have to go first. I read a bumper sticker years ago that says, change is good, you go first. We don't like change, do we? But the world around us is changing. And Drucker would say, and people have found this out for good or ill, if, if the rate of change outside the organization exceeds the rate of change inside the organization, the organization, it dies. Now, let me ask you, because we're not talking about a business, we're talking about a church. So when the world changes, let me ask you, does the church change? When the world changes, does the church change? I would answer, I'd say yes, the church should change. But I would also answer and say no, because there's something timeless about what the church offers. And no matter what changes and shifts and fluctuates around us, there's something at the core of it all that is timeless, that doesn't change. Jesus never said, hey, go and make a bunch of Christians. He didn't even, he didn't even say, everybody become a Christian. What he actually said is go and make disciples. And then later in a insulting kind of way, the Romans referred to these followers of Jesus as Christians. Take a look with me. It looks like a compliment, but it's not. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. It was pejorative. It was an insult. The Romans intended it to put them down. These are, these are little Christ. But because of the way they lived and the way they loved... Something happened and they took an insult and turned it into a compliment. By the way, you can do that too. That can happen with us today. Despite what's happening around us in our culture, I believe the church should change. But I believe the church shouldn't change. And there's some things about us that never should change. And I love the evolution of it all. Here is 
the early days. This was after, it says in Acts 2, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. It didn't say they dabbled in it. It says they devoted themselves to it. And then later, right before this, it would say that the early church turned the world upside down. That was a compliment. They stirred. Listen, the gospel message should be, it should bring offense to people. It should disrupt, the, upset the apple cart. It should be shocking and provocative. It, it should make us lean in. This stuff about love, what are you saying? This man who loved like nobody else loved and those who follow him, those who are willing to die for him. But here's what's happened in America in particular. I'm not an expert, but I can look and see and survey as you can. And we've allowed the church to drift. We, we've allowed it to drift. You see, they were called Christians. Uh, a little grammar lesson. We got some students in the house today. Let's go to school for a little bit in English. A noun is a person, place, or thing. But a noun, you know, Christians aren't really supposed to be nouns. Christianity, following Jesus as little Christ, it, we are to be a verb. We just read from Acts. 11:26. Notice it's called Acts of the Apostles, but it's not called words of the apostles or ideas of the apostles or theories of the apostles. It's called Acts because Christianity is a verb. And a noun, we could put it this way, nouns need verbs because verbs give action to the nouns. A noun, again, is just a person, place, or thing, but a verb gives action to it. We, I know that's a pronoun, that's a personal pronoun, we, we, personal pronoun, Verb, we need a verb. We, how about this? We love. But how do we love? Because we get religious people get this wrong. How do we love? I, I want us to be kind of clear about it today, at least what uh, aspirationally the way that we should love. But it's certainly how the early church loved. Verbs need adverbs because just as verbs give noun action, adverbs give verbs some flair. How about this? How about this? We, pro, noun, pronoun, we serve, verb, we serve humbly. Adverb. We serve kindly. We love extravagantly. The old, uh, sorry, the New Testament church and what we're invited into is to be collectively action, an action verb for the kingdom. We love. Are you going to love? And how are you going to love? It's easy for the church to look like different things in our society. For some, because we drift, the church has drifted in America in particular. Some of you just got back from the Dominican Republic. Some of you have served uh, in third world countries, in European countries, in Latin America, different places. And you've seen another dimension of the church, which isn't that good, by the way? Like, isn't that good? We think we're it sometimes, and we ain't it. Um, And where it's growing ain't here. It's other places. But listen, it's easy in America to say, hey, the church is a restaurant. When you go to a restaurant, what are you saying? Chiefly, you're saying, feed me. And here's the thing. Some of you have heard me preach this before. Um, I hear from some people in American Christianity, they say, hey, man, we're not going to this church anymore. We're going to this church because I wasn't, you ready? Fill in the blank. Because I wasn't getting fed at this church. Maybe you said it, and so you should feel tremendous judgment from me right now. (laughs) I've said it. I've probably listened to me. I've probably, I've been guilty of it because my words are many, and sometimes they're just flat out wrong. But don't go to a place that feeds you. Go to a place that creates a hunger where you will feed, and you will become a self-feeder. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are those, that means happy. And some of you are here today looking for happiness. You've been going to all the broken cisterns and all the wrong wells looking for happiness. And let me tell you, Jesus said it, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness, for you will be filled. Feed me, feed me. It's easy for us to say that. And I have um, been a pastor for a number of years. In the last 12 years, been a church planter with Susan and some of you. And I have been in circles today of the last several years where we've uh, been interacting with church planters around the country in different places. I've noticed this trend. A lot of churches get started in America where a young leader, usually a guy and a young family, and he'll go somewhere and he'll say, I'm going to start a church, but I don't like my mama's church. I don't like my granddad's church. I'm going to start a church. What? I'm going to start a church that we like. I'm going to charge. I'm going to start a church for us. I'm going to start a church for our people. I'm going to start a church for people who are like me and my age. You see where I'm going with this? Now, how many of you are old this morning? Just raise your hand. If you're old, raise your hand. If you're, if you're young, raise your hand. How many of you are young? How many of you don't know? If you don't know, you're old, right? If you don't know, you're old. But here's the thing. If we, listen to me. If we ever go one way or the other, and I know we're really, really young, and we've been fighting this for 12 years now. When I meet someone my age or older, and they come to the first time, come to the front for the first time, like I usually grab them by the leg or ankle and beg them not to go and to come back. They're like, oh, the church is so young. I'm like, we need you. We need some people who are gray and wrinkled and bald and ruggedly handsome like me. But anyway, if we ever go one way or the other, man, sound the alarm bell. If you don't, don't join a church, some of you, you have, you'll have this opportunity several times over. Don't join a church of just people your age. And what we need is, listen, we, we cater to me, cater, make it my church and feed me in the way that I want to feed me. Another way that we err uh, in the way we live is that we make church a theater. When you go to a theater, you're essentially saying, entertain me. Now, JFK, John F. Kennedy Jr., he would not win a hearing if he were here today. In the 60s, it worked better before his unfortunate and tragic death. But he looked at the nation. Even you young people, especially you historians, you know where I'm, where I'm going with this. But I want to ask you today to not ask what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. Because look at me for a second. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you can sit this part out. This isn't on you. No burden for you. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're seeking. We're glad you're open to discovery. But listen, if you're a Christian, can I just say, hasn't Jesus done enough? And you come with just needle, with just needs all over. And you got these needs and you want this church or that church to meet your need. By, by the way, how's it working for you? But Jesus, the gospel is this, that Jesus has already done the work for you. And Jesus has given you so much revel in that. Savor that treasure and ponder that in your heart and then live that out. Show up looking to love people because you've been loved. And so it's easy for us to be a restaurant, feed me, or a theater, entertain me, or lastly, and this may be the most damaging a pharmacy fix me. People are sad. And people are angry. And people today, more than any time in our history, want a quick fix. There's a line here that says diet and exercise and nobody's in it. And there's a line over here that says pills and quick fix. And it's got a line out the door. And that's what we want for our bodies. We've got some doctors in the house. That's what we want spiritually. And let me say something. The church is committed to your health and well-being. I want to God brag for a moment. Will you give that to me? Some of you don't like the preacher to talk about money, but we devote a lot of money to people's emotional and mental health. When there's a breakdown among, in, in one of our people, we say, hey, here's who you can go to. Do you have insurance? Because you can partner with us. But we'll partner with the work of the Holy Spirit and wise counselors and therapists to walk with you. But let me say this about the quick fix. Let me say this about those who are sad and angry and hurting and addicted and depressed and weighed down. 
The church is not here to help you manage your pain or cope with your pain. The church is here to partner with the Spirit of God to heal you way down deep because we serve and there's no place like it, no organization like it. I'm going to say this. I believe empirical data bears this out, but we follow a great physician and he can heal you at the deepest places of your heart. Come on. A man named Rodney Starks has made some powerful um, observations about the church. He said, Christianity is a converting religion. No apologies, y'all. It's evangelistic. It's persuasive and expansive and missionary. It's not coercive. It does not use manipulation or brainwashing. If you feel that, run. That's a cult. But it does proclaim and persuade and plead and pray. It is soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing, missionary faith. Or it is not true Christianity. Too often, this is our drift, we just go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until there's nothing left but a smooth running program for the doctors and the nurses and their families. If the rate of change outside of the organization exceeds the rate of change inside the organization, your organization dies. And for some of us, man, we got churches that are like the National Historic Preservation Society. We're called to action and let our verb, our action verb be love. And let's figure out today how to put some adverbs to the verb, how we can be described descriptively in our love for others. You ever been to the Pacific Northwest and seen those giant famous sequoia trees? Anybody been? Give me a shout out. Nod your head. Isn't it great? Isn't it a great trip? Put it, put it on your, your bucket list because everybody's going to kick the bucket. Everybody will die. So get out there, people, and live a little. You see the guy uh, bottom far right? That gives you the proportion. I'm telling you what you already know. We had, a, by the way, we had an arborist on the first service. So I had to really, like when I'm talking medicine, I got to be careful with all you doctors. And there's a bunch of you. But we had an arborist in the first service. But here's what uh, that arborist confirmed. And I'm, I'm only preaching the truth here. But these sequoia trees, you would think, man, isn't it amazing? These trees, I bet you, I know their roots run deep, right? How many of you, man, those roots run deep, like the pine trees, like the big oak trees. Um, when I moved, when Susan and I and the kids, they were kids then, we moved to Fondren and we were like, we want a mid-century home with mature landscaping. And then we had a tree fall on our house. And then a couple years later, we had a tree fall on our oldest son's car and totaled it. So I kind of think trees are a little bit overrated in Fondren anyway. I've been walking around, I've actually engaged with neighbors about their trees. I'm like, you know, that tree, um, I like your tree, but... If it falls, it's coming over here. But I'm hoping and praying for deep roots. I'm not digging up any holes out there, but I'm hoping for deep roots with these trees around my house. But these trees, these giant sequoias that are famous around the world, don't have deep roots. What they have is interconnected roots. They roll this way and they roll this way, and they're connected. And here's the thing. When uh, I'm playing psychology of trees here, you're going to doubt me and fact check me. I'm here, man. I'm here for it. Come at me later. But these sequoia trees, their roots do this. When one of them is struggling for nutrients for whatever reason, what do they do? There's some other trees in that family of trees that stops their intake of nutrients and they siphon it to the trees that need it. A Harvard study, a grant study that was really famous, a tripping study, it was years ago, they followed hundreds of men, men because when they did it, when they started it, Harvard was a men-only school. Uh, can you believe that? Down with the patriarchy. But anyway, they, uh, they followed these men and they just followed everything, everything, what they did, what they ate, their relationships, everything that seemed to have uh, meaningful indicators toward happiness. And here's what the grant study, look at it later, here's what the grant study uh, concluded. Happy people 
have healthy relationships. Isn't that great? Millions of dollars, hundreds of men, 70 years of results, and they discovered that happy people have healthy relationships. We could have told them ahead of the study, right? But is it true? Let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing with love in your life? What are you running from? What are you trying to hide? What are you avoiding? Who are you giving the cold shoulder or the angry words to? How are you doing in this? We um, talked about this recently, but following Jesus, Jesus wasn't some independent, rugged individualist who set up a vertical, detached system of religion. In fact, he came and, man, he squashed that. And he said, this is horizontal. Like, don't be giving me this I love God and you don't love your fellow man. In fact, you need to love your neighbor. And this is the reflection of how we love God. Another writer put it this way. Why did the early church succeed where we are failing? Where we say, I'm, I'm, it's a restaurant, it's a theater, it's a pharmacy. Why did the early church succeed where we are failing? How did they transform the Western world in such a relatively short time? They did it because they did things that baffled the Romans. The early church didn't picket, boycott, and they didn't gripe about what was going on in their culture. Should we have an invitation right now? Should we open up the altar for confession right now? Just right now. Play, play a song. I'll sing Lauren Acapella. They just did things that astonished the Romans. They took in abandoned babies. They Notice all these verbs. They helped the sick and wounded. They restored dignity to the slaves. They were willing to die for what they believed. After a while, their actions so softened the hearts of the Romans that they wanted to know more about who these Christians were. And this is the most important. Who was the God they represented? Without confrontation, protest, or debate, love did its work. Would you say that with me? Love did its work. One more, even the people in the balcony. Love did its work. I see you, Joe and Linda. I see you, Sean. I see you up there. There's a few more. I don't know your names, but I'll meet you afterwards. Love did its work. Look, church, look, look, look. What if we allowed love to do its work? Look, I can read the articles. I can get together with some of you. Some of you send me the articles about how the world is changing, and it's changing really, really fast. And sometimes it's doomsday. Sometimes it's negative. But I'm just telling you, we got something that no negative, nothing can overcome what we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you, we can reverse some things. But you and I got to be willing to astonish and baffle. So we can't be rigid and we can't be contained and we can't be predictable. And we need to be careful about how we're critical we are and the things that we're protesting. And some of you, I say this in love, I know you and I love you, and I know your heart, your heart's like mine, and there's a lot going against us in this culture, but pretty soon you're going to have nothing to eat, nothing to buy, nothing to watch, because you're protesting everything. And I'm calling us to love. And here's what we see. Man, it's a nasty culture that we're living in, but it's going to be our love that allows us to stand out. So the title of this sermon, and we only have a few more minutes, the title of this sermon is How Religion Gets Love Wrong. So let's look at it, Luke chapter 7. I promised you this. Then one of the Pharisees invited him. Him is who? Yep, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them 
with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, notice these, every word, notice every word. He said to himself, so he's thinking, right? He's thinking. He said to himself. You ever have thoughts about somebody? He said to himself, this man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Can I just say, not to creep you out any more than I have already, be careful of your thoughts. Jesus knows them all. Jesus knows them all. And here, he's about to address it with his guy Simon. Can I ask you the question, can you see two people who are more different? Here is a man who's looked up to. Here's a woman who's looked down on. Here's a man who's hosting the party. Here's a woman who crashed the party. Here's a man with a theological education. He's a man of the cloth. Here's a woman of the sheets. Here's a man, we learn his name and his trade and his prominence. And here's a woman, we don't even get her name. We just learn her reputation. She's a sinner. These people couldn't be any more different. If the people in Capernaum were asked to pick one, who would they pick? All of them. You say, Robert, how do you know? I'm just smarter than y'all, okay? I know these things. Who would they pick? All of them, all the crowd in Capernaum would pick Simon. None of them would pick the woman. She crashed the party. She did these crazy things. She broke decorum. She's a sinner. We don't even know her name. We know she turns tricks at night. We know she's spent a lot of time making love and apparently not finding much love. The crowd would pick Simon, but Jesus picked the sinner. Can I say that again? Jesus picked the sinner. Church, if there's one thing we ought to get right is this, that Jesus picked the sinner. So this, the custom at the time was when someone comes to your home, and we have our customs, they're maybe not as... Um, Strange and archaic as this, but our customers are what we have a welcome mat. We, if it's night, we leave the light on. We w open the door. We shake hands or hug, exchange pleasantries. We take a coat or jacket or something they might have, and we let them in. That's how we greet people. Ba back then, what did they do? This was customary. Again, weird for us, but it was customary that they would greet with a holy kiss. They would wash feet. They would anoint someone's head with oil. That was customary for them, and Simon does none of it. He invited Jesus to his house, but he doesn't show him the proper welcome. And this woman, what do we know about her? She's got no invitation to the party, no standing in the community. She's got no water, but she has tears. She's got no towel, but she has her hair. And she uses both to pour out this extravagant love on Jesus, longing and desperate in need for his grace. Simon, if this man were a prophet, anybody cynical and doubted, doubting and jaded among us? If this man were a prophet, and she's like, I have heard something about him, I have seen something, I've heard villagers talk about him, there is something about this man, and so I fall at his feet for grace and for mercy. And this is what we know about this woman. So I ask you, What's the difference? What's the difference 
between the two. Why would the crowd choose him, but Christ chose her, the sinner? What's the difference? Is it tradition? Is it money? Is it training? Is it education? Simon would distance her. He would defeat her in all of those by a mile. What did she have? She had what I want you to think about, and I want you to ask if you have today. She experienced discovery. She experienced discovery. And we see that Jesus has a story. For Simon, he wants Simon to know what's up. Jesus replied to Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50, since they could not pay it back. He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Did Simon get it right? Anybody know the story? Did Simon get it right? He did, sort of. Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus said, ding, 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 ding. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. Now, enter this story real quick. You see this? Turning to the woman, he said to Simon. That's probably just master class in communication, isn't it? But beyond that, beyond the logos of the words is the ethos, the trust. And we're getting a picture of our Savior. We're getting a proper, not an erroneous, but a proper, not a religious view of God, but a real view of God. He is talking to Simon, but he looks at the woman. I guarantee you this woman, didn't came, she came not expecting for Jesus to interact with her, not expecting Jesus to speak to her, not expecting Jesus to look at her, and he did. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, this is the clincher, gang. gang. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who's forgiven little loves little. It's not money. It's not training. It's not education. It's a discovery that she made. You see, when it comes to grace, the Simons in the world, the Simons in our midst are those who analyze grace and study it and they debate it and prorate it. But it's secondary experience. It's cognitive, cognitive only. But this woman, for her, her, her grace was this. I have turned tricks. I've been looking for love in the beds of many and I have not found it. And I'm at a point where I'm at the end of myself. When she broke that perfume, can I tell you, we think the value, and it's true, economically, the value of that alabaster jar, it, it was most valuable when there was perfume in it. Wouldn't you say? And Jesus flips it. The scales, the economies of God are very different. If you're going to be serious about following Jesus, you've got to be different from the world. And here he says, hey, the value's not in the perfume that's contained. The value is in the perfume spilled out and broken. And some of you, I'm telling you, and here's the thing about Simon. Let me say this just quickly. Simon was a Pharisee. The, the scripture tells us that in Luke 7. But the religious people of the day, I'll keep this super, super simple. But the religious people of the day were a part of the Sanhedrin group, and there were Sadducees and Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the more liberal sort. They became the chief priests and the, um, the, the elders. They would probably today watch CNN or uh, MSNBC. 
Uh, but the Pharisees were the conservative, uber conservative, like Fox may not be good enough for them. They're on Truth Social, social media outlet. They, they're, they're the, but see, the Sadducees were born into it as a thing of heritage. They didn't really have to do anything because they were born into it. They got it from mama in them. But the Pharisees had to work hard. Some of you are going to have to work hard. I'm looking at you college students. You've got to work really hard and apply yourself in your discipline this fall. You have to learn. You've got to memorize. But, man, it would boggle your mind if you knew what the Pharisees had to memorize. And these were boys becoming men, men in the making. They had to memorize large chunks. Like it's incredulous to think about how much they had to memorize. They had to, it was theological training. It was incredible, intense education for them to become Pharisees. They had to work for it. And the crazy thing about love in the God, economies of God, which fuels the world, by the way, and shapes our eternity, is that it's not, God's love is not achieved. It's simply received. And Simon, Jesus rather, never told Simon, hey, you're not forgiven. You can't be forgiven. Let's say that. He never told him you can't be forgiven. It's just Simon never asked for it. Did she? Did she? With all of her being. With all that she was, she came. And can I just say to us, we got some religious people in the room. And you're dry and barren and joyless. Because your religion has just been passed on to you. And you come to church occasionally and you're just honoring your heritage. You haven't surrendered your heart. And the gospel is when you and I realize that we have to admit and we have to invite. We have to admit that our strategies aren't working. That trusting in ourselves and our stuff, it's hollow and empty. And we have to pour ourselves out. And by the way, we ought to pour ourselves out in worship. Some of you are going to act a fool for your college football team. And you freak out if somebody raises a hand at church. Now, we're not going in that direction. And we'll keep order here. And I've got 1 Corinthians 14 to point us to that. But I am saying that we need to admit and we need to spill our lives out. We need to pour ourselves out. And that's what the gospel means. It's, it's the invitation for us. is to come and to say, my life poured out. For the one who loves me deeply. I bet you the woman, this woman, I'm guessing, 50-50 on this. But Luke 6 comes before Luke 7. In Luke 6, Jesus said, your father is merciful. And I bet that statement gave her hope to come to Jesus. And for whoever is busted up in their sin, and clenched in the vice grip of an addiction or depression, or as Hebrews 12 would say, the same sin that just easily entangles you. I want to tell you today that your Father is merciful. And that should give you the courage, Hebrews 4.16, to come boldly to the throne of grace and kneel at the Father and pour your life out and receive His forgiveness. Could it be that the secret to loving is receiving. The preacher just asked a rhetorical question. Are you with me? John would say there's a sequence to love. I know you don't like formulas. I don't like preachers who give us formulas. They make it too easy. Seven easy steps and blah, 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 blah. But I'll tell you this. John is right. He's an old man. He's lived. We love because he first loved us. There's a sequence to it. Ephesians 5. Notice the sequence. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved, beloved children. 
Susan will tell me often at the house, even at my age and 27 years of marriage, grow up, quit acting so immature, quit being a kid. And she's down the hall. She's not going to hear this, right? But she loves it when I act like a child. Deep down. She, Robert, stop it. But she, she loves it. Here's the thing. We, to enter the kingdom, we've got to be childlike. And we've got to say, I ain't that serious, and I'm not that important. I don't know who needs to hear that, but you're really not that important. You're really not. And the things you've been clinging to and that get you, I mean, you think people are thinking about you and astonished with you, they're really not. And it's coming to an end anyway. It's going to, raw, it's going to rust, and moths are going to get it. Thieves are going to break in and steal. I'm quoting Jesus from Matthew 6. But to be a child is to say, he loves me. And that's the theme. That shapes my life above all else. So you're loved. And then what? You're loved. There's a sequence to it. And so just as Christ loved us, that's the order. He loves us and gave himself for us as a what? Noticing language here? As an alabaster jar of perfume broken and spilled out. And sacrifice to God. This would be telling you to love telling you to love other people without telling you to know that you're loved is like having you write a big check and not give anything to deposit in your account. This is the deposit in your account. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Some of you, you get it so mixed up, like this is so fundamental. How do you miss this? I've missed it in my life. Simon's missed this. Your love for God, your love for God, your love for God. Do I love God? Do I love God? Am I being sincere? Where's my heart? His love for you. His love for you. His love for you. Can I tell you, your heart is fickle. Your heart is fickle. His love for you is not. Start there. So that's the deposit in your account. Now here's the check you write. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So Lauren, as the team come up, I want to share with you that starting next week, we're going to walk through line by line, verse by verse, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. It'll be really easy to follow, and we're going to rattle some cages and ruffle some feathers and talk about what love really is. When I was a younger man, a preacher stood on the stage one time, I think he meant well, and he said, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, you should substitute your name for love. Robert is patient and Robert is kind. Robert doesn't boast and Robert's not proud. Robert is not rude or self-seeking. Robert doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Robert is not easily angry. He doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Robert, Robert, Robert. And look, my wife was here at the 930. She, She was laughing. Because guess what? Robert ain't none of those things. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Substitute Jesus for those things. And this is what I want to guide us as we start the series. Instead of 1 Corinthians 13 reminding us of a love we cannot produce, let it remind us of a love that we cannot resist. Stand. Father, let this word get in us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Altars open when you come. We're down front. We would love, it would be a high honor to pray 
for you. I'll, I'll stare at you for a couple of minutes if I have to, but I'd love to embrace you and pray for you. You come today if we can pray about something that God stirred up in you today or something you brought with you today or something that you need before you go. Let's give God these few minutes.